there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My talk this morning is the last of the, the second part, A Steadfast Heart, A Simpler Life, and the title for this talk is The Power and Peace of Christ. And I would like to go back and remind you of the questions that I asked you at the very beginning, the three questions, what do you want in life, how will you get it, and what will it cost you? And I couldn't help pondering long and hard over the one startling question that we had last night from someone who was carrying on an affair. And I thought this, for that person, of course, uh, there is the clear distinction between desiring the will of God and my own. The second, how will you get it? Of course, renunciation is the only possible answer in that case. And what will it cost you? Well, probably many tears. And all of us have dilemmas of one sort or another in places where, in situations where it is Christ or me. Which will I choose? And God has given us the power to choose. I want to begin, well, first of all, let me ask you if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed because you've gotten an overload this during these few days. Are the principles impossible to carry out? Are you afraid to leave this hallowed place and all these wonderful people and go home to reality? Solzhenitsyn wrote this prayer, which I only recently came across, and believe it or not, it was at one time published in Vogue magazine. I cannot imagine why, <laughs> but I have no doubt in my mind that Solzhenitsyn was an, is an earnest Christian, having read a number of his books. And this was his prayer, and it fits in so beautifully with our theme of a simpler life. Remember that Solzhenitsyn suffered in concentration camp, of course, in labor camps in Russia. How simple for me to live with you, Lord. And this prayer was written in prison. How simple for me to live with you, Lord. How easy to believe in you. When in confusion my soul bears itself or bends. When the most wise can see no further than this night and do not know what the morrow brings, you fill me with the clear certainty that you exist and that you watch to see that all the paths of righteousness be not closed. I love that phrase. I thought we, we sometimes feel that the paths of righteousness have been closed for us. There's just no way that we can walk in righteousness in a particular situation. But God, even in the prison, watches to see that all the paths of righteousness be not closed. From the heights of worldly glory, I am astonished by the path through despair you have provided me. This path, from which I have been worthy enough to reflect your radiance to men, all that I will yet reflect, you will grant me. And for that which I will not succeed in reflecting, 
you have appointed others. It is simple to live with the Lord. It is not complicated. It is not always easy. Let's not confuse simple with easy. But when Jesus says, love your enemies, we know exactly what that means. When he says, um, do good to them that hate you, we know exactly what that means. We want to stew and fret over the how, but it is really simple. When he says, love your enemies, he means exactly that. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, we know exactly what he means. We don't want to do it. That's what makes it complicated. But if you are feeling overwhelmed and overloaded from this time together, I have verses of reassurance, all of them from Isaiah Isaiah 41, 43, and 44. From Isaiah 41, 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then verse 14, do not be afraid, O worm Jacob. Anybody feeling a little wormy this morning? Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43:18, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. You do, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Isaiah 44, 1-3. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant So three basic principles. Do not fear. Forget the former things. Now listen. And when you feel as though you're going about to give way and sink, do not fear. Forget the former things and listen to what the Lord says. And he he repeats over and over again that he is able to help us. The power and the peace of Christ Now, let's think of the power of Christ. How many of you know that lovely little song, He is able, more than able? Very few of you. It's wonderful. I see about four hands. But that's what it says. He is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. He is able, more than able, to handle everything that comes my way. And 2 Timothy 1.12, the Apostle Paul gives a ringing testimony, I know whom I have believed, and I'm absolutely sure that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You have to make the commitment. He will do the keeping. He is able. Don't change your mind. If you have made, up, made some resolutions this week, if you have made some solemn promises and confessions before God, Keep a steadfast heart. Be tenacious. Remember his presence and his power. Somebody here, I'm sure, feels that he or she is a hopeless case. There ain't no such animal. Not in God's economy. 
none of us is a hopeless case. All of us are to begin with, of course. We are helpless and hopeless, but we just sang, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. God is in the business of repair and renovation and renewal. And I remind you again of my two favorite verses, two that fit right together. Second Chronicles twenty twelve. we have no power, we do not know what to do. And Isaiah 50, verse 7, the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. And remember Jesus' word. He himself knew what he would do. And I read you that lovely do the next thing last night. And the lines, and all through the hours, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. And he will always give you the power to do the next thing, whatever that is. He, he is right there, and he does not want you lugging the baggage of the past or arrogating to yourself the worries of the future. He will either shield you from that suffering that you're afraid of in the future, or he will be there to give you the grace all-sufficient if he does not shield you from it. So I'll give you two headings under the title, The Power and the Peace of Christ, and I think you could guess what they are. Number one is the power of Christ, and number two is the peace of Christ. When Jesus took the disciples in the boat, it was Jesus' suggestion that they should go across the lake. So Jesus led them into a storm. Remember, Jesus does lead people into storms. When you get into a storm, it isn't necessarily because you've been disobedient. And Israel was led into the, to the bitter water of Marah. It was God who led them there. And God has tests and exams that he wants us to pass when he not only allows things like that, but actually arranges them. And so he arranged to go with the disciples across the lake in the boat, and a huge squall came up, and the disciples were terrified, and they were sure that the next wave was going to send them straight to the bottom. And Jesus was asleep on a pillow, absolutely at rest in the will of his Father. And they came to him, and I can imagine them grabbing him by the arm and giving him a hard shake and saying, Don't you care that we are perishing? That's what they said to him. And his answer was, Why are you so fear fearful? Why is it that you have no faith? And he, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and they calmed down. In that hymn, Be Still My Soul, says, the waves and winds still know his voice, who ruled them while he dwelt below. And I love the passage in Joshua 10, where the sun stood still. What an incredible story that is. The sun stood still, the axe did swim, This God is our God forever and ever. That's the motto that I'm told was posted in the headquarters of the China Inland Mission in Shanghai. These are, not, these are three statements from different places in the Bible, but one, the first is, The sun stood still, the axe did swim. This God is our God forever and ever. And if he needs to make the sun stop, 
in the middle of the day, as he did when Joshua was fighting the Amorites, if he needs to do that for you, he's perfectly capable of doing that. He can do more than you can imagine. He is more than able to accomplish what concerns me today. The Bible says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. There have certainly been many days when the Lord has listened to a man, but that's the only time when the sun actually stood still. And I've understood that astronomers and other scientists who study the heavens have never been able to figure out what happened to one particular day in the Earth's history that everything else is accounted for. But they are completely baffled because there seems to be some sort of a hiatus in there. Now I had the golden opportunity to test the power and the peace of Christ late last year and in the beginning of this year when we were trying to plan a trip to Ecuador. I wanted to go back to Ecuador. My husband and I had been there a year and a half before and had not succeeded in seeing the particular individuals that I wanted to see among the Alcas and the Quichuas. It's very difficult to communicate with people in the jungle and to get the pe people to be at the right place at the right time and get us at the right place at the right time was a major problem and we really didn't succeed. I saw a few of the people, we did visit both the Alcas and the Quichuas, but we wanted to go back and see if we could do a little better on arranging things. And so I've been corresponding with a Quechua Indian friend of mine for six months or so, a man named Venancio, just a dear, godly, humble pastor who took over when Jim Elliott was killed. He was tutored by Jim Elliott. I think uh, he had come to the Lord through him. And he was a faithful teacher of the school and a pastor in the church. And he continues his faithful pastoral work in various places, including going to the Alcas, and he's actually learned the Alca language now so that he can communicate with them. But anyway, he and I would correspond. And so we were hoping that everything was going to work out beautifully. And we took our daughter, my daughter Valerie, and her husband Walt, and her oldest son. But the day that we were, the day before we were to leave, the TV was predicting another major nor'easter blizzard. And we live 35 miles from the airport. The Boston airport gets closed down at the drop of a hat. So as I was packing the suitcase the night before, I thought this is an exercise in futility. There's no way we we're going to get to the airport tomorrow. And if we get there, the airport's going to be closed or the flight's going to be canceled. These are the kinds of things that I always assume are going to happen. And uh, the prediction was correct. There was a tremendous blizzard. But the power of Christ was manifest. We managed to get there. When we got there, Lars said, you jump out of the car and go in and check the monitor to see if our flight is canceled. I went in, checked the monitor. Almost every single flight was canceled except ours to Miami. But there were about 75 people in the line. We were never going to make it down to the gate because we had exactly 20 minutes. And furthermore, we were on standby. We got through the airport lines by Lars's machinations, and he's a man that figures out how to do things that nobody else can figure out how to do. <laughs> there must have been 75 people standing in the line ahead of me, and so Lars did what I couldn't imagine how he thought of it. He went to the London counter and talked to the lady there. She didn't have anything to do, so she put us right through, and I, 
I said, now, how did you ever think of that? He said, anybody would have thought of that. I said, well, 75 other people didn't think of it. <laughs> anyway, we got to the gate. We sat down, holding our breath. I should say, I was holding my breath. Will we get on the plane, you know, and stand by? We got on the plane. We got to Miami. Valerie and Walt were there. It was just one thing after another where the Lord had been telling me for months, commit it to me, commit it to me. Every letter I wrote to Venancio, every worry I had, I said, Lord, here it is. Lord, you can do this. Only you can arrange this. Please help us. Please help us. And he continually gave me these promises. If it doesn't work out the way I want it to work out, that's fine. It's the Lord's business. But it was example after example after example of the faithfulness of God in working out things that we could not have possibly worked out by ourselves. We got to Quito. Then the question was, how are we going to get to the jungle? Well, as Barb knows and everybody else who's been in Ecuador, there, there used to be only one road from Quito down into the jungle, and it was very often closed because of landslides. Well, the road was closed because of landslides. But we found out that since our time there, which was many, many decades ago, there has been another road, and so we knew we could go down that way. But how do we get there? Do we get a bus? Do we get a taxi? Do we hire a car? What do we do? Who should be standing in front of the guest house where we were staying in Quito but Steve Saint, son of Nate Saint, the pilot who was killed along with the five men. Steve and his family are living with the Alka Indians now. And Steve was standing there in Quito, and he said, well, hi. He said, where are you going, and what are you going to do? <laughs> and I said, well, we'd like to get to the jungle tomorrow. He said, we're going to the jungle tomorrow. We'll take you. So we were going to a little town called Tana, which is, used to be a crossroads and nothing much else, maybe 10, 15 houses and two streets. And Venancio lives near there, my friend. So I had assumed there wouldn't be any problem in finding Venancio. Anybody would know who he was. We get to Tano, and it turns out to be a metropolis. Utterly impossible to find anybody. It'd be like a needle in a haystack. We stopped the car in front of a little restaurant. I got out, being the only Spanish and Quechua speaker. And no, I shouldn't say the only Spanish speaker. Certainly Steve is fluent in Spanish. But I got out to see what I could do about finding Venancio. And immediately, a young man came along and said to me, Buenos dias. And I looked at him, and I thought, this looks like a Quechua. And I said, Buenos dias, which means, are you a Quechua speaker? He was. I said, do you know Venancio Tapwe? Yes. Can you take us to his house? Of course. <laughs> Just like that. I mean, the power and peace of Christ. And the Lord was rebuking me continually, saying, you've been worrying about all this. Didn't I tell you 50 times that I was in charge? If this is what I want you to do, then I'm going to work it out. And if it's not what I want you to do, then you're going to learn something else. Then where, where do we stay? Five gringos, five foreigners. Where in the world do we stay? Well, I thought perhaps we could find five hammocks someplace. I certainly wasn't expecting anything else. We found that this young man who had met us and said Buenos Dias was the son of an Indian that I had known, the Christian man who has charge of the whole Eastern Jungle radio network. He is a preacher. He's a Christian. He's also a product of missionaries. And he has arranged a little tourist place for folks like us. He built some little huts with beds, not just hammocks. We stayed the night with him on the beautiful river of Pano. 
And then we were only about a 10-minute drive. It used to be a six-hour walk from Shandia, the station where Jim Elliott and I had worked. Jim and Pete Fleming had worked there as single men, and then when Jim and I were married, we worked there together, and that's where Valerie lived for the first few years of her life. So she was extremely eager to show this house to her husband and her son and to see it herself. She had not been there since she was eight years old. So we went to the house. It's full of Indians now. There are a whole bunch of large extended families living there. They gave us a little lunch of manioc and hard-boiled eggs and chicha, an odd drink that the Indians are very fond of. While we were sitting there, up the trail came an Indian, followed by a tall, blonde young man, obviously a foreigner, dressed in a very expensive motorcycle suit. And this young man walked into this house and said something to Walt or Lars and came over to me with his hand outstretched and he said, I know you. I've been reading your books. I'm from Switzerland. I've read seven of your books in German. I wanted to see the house Jim Elliott built. Now, can you imagine? We were in that little jungle station, maybe two hours at the most. That man had been in Quito for months working, studying Spanish or something. He had chosen that day to come on his motorcycle five hours to to the jungle and arrived while the widow and the daughter of Jim Elliot were in Jim Elliot's house. The sun stood still. The axe did swim. This God is our God forever and ever. The Lord wants us to trust him. And all of us have plenty of situations, plenty of stories that we could tell where things did not work out that way. That's the way it was on the first trip of ours. But in each situation, whether it is according to our plans or according to God's plans, or far and away beyond the wildest imaginings of our plans, which certainly happened on this occasion, he's saying, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? The power and the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ, point two, is utterly different from anything that the world can offer. The last gift that Jesus gave to his friends was peace. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. The world can offer nothing remotely similar to the peace of Christ. Now, my book, Keep a Quiet Heart, has a very lovely cover on it. I had nothing to do with the making of that cover, but I was very pleased when they sent it to me. But it's a calm lake with woods in the background and one lone individual in a canoe. And that's our idea of peace, but that's the peace that the world can give. We can find a peaceful place once in a while. But the Lord Jesus wants us to be at rest in the boat in the storm. Amy Carmichael wrote, Hold us in quiet through the age-long minute while thou art silent and the wind is shrill. Can the boat sink when thou, dear Lord, art in it? Can the heart faint that waiteth on thy will? 
hold us in quiet through the age-long minute. When you're standing in the corridor waiting for the doctor's diagnosis on someone you love. When the worst possible news is brought, the peace of Christ can be there, and I know that this is true. And I know the ways, the tiny, sweet, little ways in which God brings to us the peace of Christ in our darkest hours. I remember going into the waiting room with my second husband as he went for another one of his radiation treatments. He had two different kinds of cancer, totally unrelated, so he had to have six weeks of radiation for one kind, six weeks of radiation for the other, chemotherapy, etc., etc. So we knew the route to Boston very well. And there were sweet old ladies who served coffee in those waiting rooms. And one of them just, to me, looked like a Christian. There was just something about the way she offered the cup of coffee and the way she smiled and the way she would touch a little child who has a bald head and red X's on both temples. It was the peace that only the Lord could give in a case like that. A steadfast heart is what God wants to give to us, no matter what the circumstances. And I know that that's absolutely possible. When my husband was diagnosed with cancer, I had a visit from a sweet young woman, a seminary wife from the seminary where my husband was a professor. And she had had a little boy born with a very serious heart anomaly, and the doctors had told her that they could not operate until he was four years old. And possibly he would live that long, but not very likely. And so, of course, every day, every minute of every day, she's wondering if she's going to find him dead, dead in the playpen, dead in the carriage, dead in his bed. And she said, Elizabeth, the Lord taught me that I must not make a career out of my child's illness, but that I must rather reach out to other people who were suffering. Well, I didn't forget that lesson. And it came back to me many times when I was tempted to make a career out of my husband's illness and to start feeling sorry for myself because I would wake in the middle of the night thinking, I can't handle another day. I cannot bear his suffering one more day. He was at home and I was doing 24-hour nursing care, etc. And again, I would learn, and it was as though I had to learn it from kindergarten again and again, I'm with you all the days and all the nights. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. And of course it was the anticipation of what might happen tomorrow and the hideous, horrible things the doctors were predicting that they might have to do before he died, which to me were much worse than death. Just horrible things. And I would lie awake in those hours that Amy Carmichael calls when all life's molehills turn into mountains. Thinking about tomorrow. And Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. In other words, tomorrow is not my business. It is God's business. And I'm here to testify that in the worst times of my life, the darkest valleys, the deepest waters, the hottest fires, God has been absolutely faithful but he has to keep telling me, only today, 
is yours. Tomorrow is not yours. It's mine. I'm already there. You ever think about that? God's already there. The past is none of your business. It's long gone. It's also mine. This is your assignment. I will give you my peace and I will give you my power, but you're going to have to trust me. And it's a lesson that we have to learn again and again. Not just in the huge crises, but in those little things. Very recently, I read a biography of a Chinese Christian. I love biographies, and let me urge you to read Christian biographies. The wonderful thing about biography is that you can see the whole span of a life from birth to death and the faithfulness of God in all the crises. And I had just read a biography of, of uh, Oswald Chambers. There's an excellent new one out. And it was a marvelous thing to see all the dead ends that Oswald Chambers, in his very short life, he only lived to be 43, but there, again and again there were crises where there just was no way out. When he got married, he had no money, no furniture, no house, and no job. And you read the biography in two days, and so you just you see the, the faithfulness of God just telescoped, as it were, in that. And it, it strengthens my faith. So then I read the story of this Chinese Christian, and in there he tells about a farmer who had recently received Christ, a Chinese farmer, and faced a spiritual crisis. His strip of rice field lay close above an irrigation stream on the terraced hillside, but again and again he had been defrauded of his laboriously pumped water by a neighbor beneath him on the slope who might... who at night breached his retaining bank and ran it off onto his own land. In desperation, the farmer went to his fellow believers. It is not righteous, he exclaimed. What shall I do? Tell me what should be my right conduct in this situation. And this is a good lesson for all of us. When we don't know what to do, go to some godly people who will do what these men did. They knelt with him in prayer and then suggested that he try to go the second mile. If we only do the right thing, they said, surely we are unprofitable servants. We should go beyond what is merely right. So the next day, the farmer carried forth his wooden trough with its water lift and went to work once again on his treadmill. In the morning, he pumped water for his neighbors two strips of wetland below him. Then in the afternoon, he pumped sufficient for his own field. The neighbor was dumbfounded, of course. After weighing the matter, he called on the Christian farmer and asked for an explanation. Soon he too was drinking the water of life. Self-abandonment. The outrageous thing is what God asks us to do. The totally selfless thing, the thing where I must deny myself, give up my rights, turn them over to God, and ask God, what is the right thing to do here? Now, why do I bring in an illustration like that when we're talking about the power and the peace of Christ? Well, think of the agonies of litigation and financial hardship that that farmer might have gone through over months and years and perhaps with no positive result whatsoever. Nothing but more and more bad blood between him and his neighbors. 
The power of Christ was on him as he gave up his right to himself. The result was a piece of Christ. And that lesson that that young mother had taught me came back to me again and again when I was beginning to feel sorry for myself instead of reaching out to somebody else. And one night the Lord just reminded me, if you don't think that you have the strength to face another day, how about not asking me anymore for strength for yourself? How about asking me to give you strength to give away? And I took Isaiah 58.10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, then the Lord will... Multi will, will bring you, he will make you like a watered garden. I haven't got the words exactly, but the, the reference is Isaiah 58.10. The Lord will satisfy your needs and will make you like a watered garden whose springs fail not. So instead of praying for my needs and being completely wrapped up in myself, God will by his power give me strength to give away. But I have to be willing to accept it. I have to be willing to reach out. I have a friend who, whose husband was the pastor of one church for 18 years, and it turned out that for four of the last four of those years, he'd been carrying on an affair with the woman who was in charge of the women's meeting, with the women's work in that church. Of course, my friend, the wife of this pastor, was the last to know about it. Everybody else in the church knew what was going on. And, of course, he left his wife and cleaned out the bank account was fired from the church, moved in with the mistress, and I don't know what's happened since then. But I tried to be there for her. She came and cried on my shoulder many a time. But one, year, one day, after about a year had gone by, she called me, and she was in tears again. I said, well, how's it going? What's happening? And she said, Elizabeth, the people in the church have, have abandoned me. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, they're just not doing all the things they used to do for me. They were so wonderful when he left. And I said, Susie, that's not her name. I said, Susie, you're expecting way too much of the people in the church. They were wonderful to you. They provided you a place to live. They found you a job. They gave you food. They helped your children. I said, they've got plenty of problems of their own. It's time for you to start operating on Isaiah 58.10. Well, of course, her immediate reply, not knowing what Isaiah 58.10 said, she said, but how can I do something for somebody else when I'm such a state myself? I said, you'll find out. You'll find out. I don't know any therapy like it. Think how much simpler our lives would be if we would trust and obey. But we've got to start with a steadfast heart. Lord, you are in charge of my life. You are in charge of all the circumstances in my life. And I am going to trust you. And I am going to obey you. And I am going to praise you. And don't waffle on that, as the British say. Don't wobble. Don't change your mind. You make a decision, you stick with the decision. And that has been a principle of my life. Be careful, be prayerful in making a decision. But once the Lord has given you the guidance that you believe answers your question, then you move on that. You move in that direction. I'm greatly comforted by the verse in Isaiah that says, Thou shalt hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, if you turn to the right hand and if you turn to the left. 
And so many times in what seemed to me like very difficult, difficult decisions, I've said to the Lord, Lord, this is what looks to me like the way you want me to go. This seems like the right road. So I am going to move in this direction, Lord, but you're my shepherd and I'm going to trust you if I'm making a mistake to, sh- to hear that, to speak that voice, that word behind me, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And he has done that for me again and again. These are principles which are in my book called The Guidance of God. But, of course, they all come out of this same book right here. Psalm 119, 165 says, Peace is the reward of those who love thy law. And you are not going to find peace of the sort that the world can never give unless you learn to love God's law. And again, that means obedience. What do you want most in life? How are you going to get it? What will it cost you? It's going to cost you the laying down of your life. That is what the cross means. And one of the questions that Amy Carmichael would ask a prospective recruit who was considering working with her in the Donor Work Fellowship was, is it the cross that attracts you? Does hardness draw or repel you? Incisive questions. I've seen some of these elaborate computer printouts that poor missionaries have to go through and fill out before they can even be considered for modern mission boards. And I look at those and I think, I never would have made it, never in a million years. Would I have ever passed that kind of an examination? But the simple 25 questions that Amy Carmichael had to ask went much deeper, right down to the very heart of things. Is it the cross that attracts you? Does the thought of hardness draw or repel you? What is your answer? It is a simplifier. Life will be infinitely simpler if you've only got one aim, thy will, not mine. I give up my right to myself. I take up the cross. I say what Mary said, yes, Lord. And whatever I don't understand and can't change, again, I lift up my hands and I say, yes, Lord. And let me suggest that you practice lifting up your heart many, many times a day. And how do you do that? We'll just say, Lord, I lift up my heart. Just a thought, an instant flight up instead of down or horizontally toward this impossible person that you're going to have to face. Lord, I lift up my heart. Many times a day, the Lord can give you his peace. And he expects us to receive it from him. He expects us to accept his word, his power, and his peace. And in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we read, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do the next thing. I gave you the 
words of that lovely poem yesterday. But like a low inspiration, the quiet words ring. Do the next thing. Time, opportunity, guidance are given. Do the next thing. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you give up your right to yourself and you take up the cross and follow me. Let's never get away from those simple conditions. We understand them. Give up your right to yourself. I think one of the questions that I might not have gotten around to answering the other, yesterday was how give, give us practical ways, or maybe I was a little facetious, that's probably what I did when somebody said, give us practical ways of submitting to your husband, and I guess I said, well, do what he says, or something like that. <laughs> Which was rather blunt, but let me elaborate a little bit. Uh, I can think of no more likely area in which we're going to have to learn this lesson, we married women, than relinquishing a preference. I would like to go out for dinner, or I would like to go to that restaurant instead of this one, or I would like to see that video or that movie rather than this one. Just don't have any discussion. Just, sure, of course. Give up your right to yourself. There's all sorts of tiny little ways in which it just simplifies life tremendously. And my sister-in-law, who married, shall I say, my favorite brother, they had a long honeymoon by car in Europe. And my brother is worse than I am when it comes to assuming that everything's going to go wrong. And he just does not believe maps. <laughs> and his wife was a good map reader. So she's sitting there telling him, this is the road you're supposed to take. And he would go the other direction and ask four or five different people. And of course, eventually come back. But she said, At, for the first few days, it was just awful. She said, because I was insisting that I knew where it was supposed to be. And she said, I finally realized that the simple way is just to go ahead and get lost. <laughs> it was much simpler to get lost. In other words, she submitted to his foolishness. And it wasn't disastrous in the end. But the Lord is asking us every day, in small ways, in middle-sized ways, in big ways, take up the cross. The cross means... The will of God crosses the will of man. Somebody has to die. Think of the agonies that you will evade. The power of Christ. The peace of Christ. Utterly different from anything that the world can offer. May God give us the grace to receive what he wants to give us this morning and to take it home with us. May there be a difference in every home. And that's, my, that's always my heart's prayer, that there will be something different in the life of each individual who's been here for these few days. Maybe it has nothing to do with anything I said. It may have something to do you learned in your small group, something you learned by living in a room with somebody else that you didn't even know. Whatever it is, may God give us the grace to act on that decision, to love him, to trust him, and to praise him. And with that, we will stop. I do have a few questions. I carry on, do I? Okay, the first question I'm not going to read out, but I will give you the answer, and then you'll know what the question was. 
Oh, yeah. Lars is going to tape these, so he's just giving me a signal to wait till he can turn on the tape, because some of you were hoping for the questions, question and answer period on tape. Okay? When my second husband was dying of cancer, I needed some help in the house. He was at home, and he was a very big man, and I could no longer do it by myself. So I decided to try to find a seminary student who might come and live in the house and help me take care of my husband. So I found a very fine young man who was to move in on the following Monday. Monday, my husband died. So naturally, this man just assumed he would not be needed. But as I lay in bed that night, thinking about my empty house, my daughter had gone to college, I had two spare bedrooms, one which was ready for this man, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of nice to have some company in the house rather than be here all by myself? So I called this young man, told him that the room was still available if he wanted it, and he came. But then I thought, it doesn't look too good for a widow to be in a house with a man who was considerably older than the average seminary student. So I better get another seminary student, because, you know, three's a crowd. So <laughs> I called the seminary to ask if there was a man who might be looking for a place in a private home. So a second man came, and these two men were like angels that God had chosen for me. I mean, they were just the star lodgers. And they both lived there for two years, both of them seminary students. To make a long story short, the first one married my daughter. The second one married me. <laughs> now when... Don't you dare go out of here and say they lived together for two years before they got married. I kicked Lars out after the first two years, not because he was not a gentleman, he was a perfect gentleman, and it was with deliberate speed and majestic instancy that he paced himself, not wanting to scare me off, but it was two and a half years after I threw him out that he finally persuaded me to marry him. But at any rate, when a friend of mine, a lady in her late 70s who had lost her one and only husband, asked me, well, how in the world did you ever get three husbands? <laughs> She was from Texas, and of course I told her I didn't get any of them. My mother told me, you don't go after a man, you just let the Lord bring the man to you. And keep, don't give them anything to work on. Keep them guessing, keep them at arm's length, etc. So I told her my story about how Lars ended up being my husband, and she said, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. <laughs> so now you know what the question was. How did I meet Lars? Please comment on your attitude toward Christian counseling, your comments on looking at the past. I read you the definitive verse. Do not look at the past, the Bible says. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all Christian counseling is off the wall or bad. But I do not believe that much of it would be necessary. I believe that very little of it would be necessary. If people took God at his word and went to the foot of the cross with their problems, we would much rather call up 39 of our closest friends and pour out our souls. And after we've gotten all the counsel we can get from our friends, then we go to the poor overworked pastor who's not going to charge you $90 an hour. And you pour it out to him, and he's just finally in desperation. He says, well, I guess you need some counseling. 
some Christian counseling, and then you go and start paying money, and that counselor is going to keep you coming back again and again, because you go about this problem, but then he uncovers this layer and this layer and this layer, and what your grandfather did to you, etc., etc., which might never have happened. But you don't need to know all that junk if it is true. I don't know if it's true or not, but so what? It was dealt with on the cross. Read Isaiah 58. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What does that mean? What has it meant through 1900 years of Christian history? There was no such thing as professional counseling until the last five decades. There was no such thing. What were Christians doing? They were doing what Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress. He's lugging this huge burden. He comes to the cross. The burden falls off his back, rolls down the hill into the tomb, and disappears. And Christian lifts his hands and he says, He hath given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. So when people come to me for counseling, all I can say is, I'm not a professional. I'm just a woman who loves God, loves his word, and would like to help you to love God too. If, this is, if I'm the person you came to, this is the kind of advice you're going to get. If you think you need Christian counseling that you have to pay for, you go right ahead. I have heard some horror stories about some of that, and there are more and more coming to light. My endless plea is try God first. Try the cross first. Don't even go to that support group in your church until you have spent time on your face with God. Because there's a tremendous temptation in a support group for everybody to tell his troubles to everybody else, and everybody sits around there, and of course you feel very comforted because the more you pity yourself, the more everybody pities you, and there's just a lot of danger. I had a pastor who stressed that God is not in death. Death comes because of evil, not from God. Your thoughts. Well, of course, death comes from evil. There would not have been sin, sorrow, destruction, and death if it hadn't been for Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the death of death and hell's destruction. You know that hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah? It has a stanza that's left out of a lot of hymn books, but it says that, death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. And that, that is a scriptural concept. Jesus destroyed the power of death. The grave could not hold him. He triumphed o'er the grave. And so, of course, death is an evil, but death is a necessary evil in this world. It is appointed unto men once to die. Do you think a person can lose their salvation? I'm not going to say no to that one, and I'm not going to say yes. I'm just going to remind you of that sobering chapter of Hebrews 6. Does a wife still need to submit to her husband in circumstances where he is trying to have her do something contrary to the word of God? Do we then submit to the higher authority of God? For example, watching pornography together, physical abuse, etc., let me recommend Elizabeth Handford's book, Me, Obey Him. It answers all these hard questions, and it is a wonderful book. Elizabeth Handford was my, a classmate of mine at Wheaton, and she and I were debate colleagues. And so I know her very well. I also know her husband, and I wondered how that marriage was going to work out. 
Her husband was in Jim Elliott's class, and we were both a year ahead. But she has written a magnificent book called Me, Obey Him, and it's liberating and simplifying. What is the difference in God testing us, as he did the wandering Israelites, to see what was in their hearts and being tempted by the flesh or Satan? Don't forget Jesus was tempted by Satan. The very first test of the validity of his ministry after he was baptized was to go into the wilderness. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for what? Specifically, it says, to be tempted. So yes, we are tempted by the devil. We are not tempted by God. But God may lead us into temptation at times as a trial, just as he did with Jesus. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Lord, I'm too weak for that. And we can pray that. And yet God can allow temptation to come and may even lead us. But we are never to walk into temptation. It's absurd to pray, lead us not into temptation, but then walk straight into it deliberately and wonder why we got into trouble. How would you respond to those who say all illness or suffering is from Satan and lack of healing is a failure on our part to have enough faith? In 2 Corinthians 12, we have the story of Paul having a strange spiritual experience, which was the kind that you and I would love to have so we could write about it or talk about it on TV. <laughs> and Paul says there was given a thorn, a messenger of Satan, to keep me from becoming absurdly conceited. Now in that sentence we've got God and Satan, because who cares if Paul becomes absurdly conceited? God cares. But the thorn was a messenger of Satan. God allowed Satan to inflict a thorn in order that Paul might learn a lesson far more important than that strange spiritual experience that he'd had when he was caught up into the third heaven. A lesson which has blessed millions ever since, which we would not have had if Paul had not had the thorn. So here we have that mystery again that we've been talking about this week. The necessity of evil and the sovereignty of God, man's choice, God's control. And Paul learned not only that his grace was sufficient for him, but he learned to be grateful. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we are the beneficiaries of that lesson. I'm sure the time must be up. Thank you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>